Hello and welcome to Stock Talk, a podcast series which brings together livestock specialists, vets and farmers to give you the tools you need to improve your business and embrace the future. Stock Talk is presented by myself, Robert Ramsey, and produced by Kirsten Blackwood as part of the Farm Advisory Service in association with the Scottish Government. So today's podcast focuses on sheep and particularly focusing on making changes to sheep systems with a view to have or to developing a low cost high output type system. I'm joined by Perry Parkinson, who is the head shepherd at SRUC Barony Farm. Uh, so hello to you, Perry. Hope you're well today. Hello. Um, Perry, could you give us just a wee bit of background as to you? So you've been at SRUC, you've been at Barony for about 18 months or so, is it? Uh, just, no, just over well, 13, 14 months now, I think. So um, just a bit shorter than that. Yeah, so you've been you've been round the track though. You've been you've had a full season and oh, definitely. Um, it's interesting to see. I suppose it's it's a nice story for us that we've got, you know, one of our good students from the past is now employed in quite an exciting role at Barony. So do you want to just give us a wee bit of an insight as to where you've been and uh, and how you've landed up back uh, at SRUC? I'll try my best. Um, yeah, so I'm not originally from um, farm and stock or farming background. Um, so as I was lucky enough to to move over to Northumberland when I was very young, um, very much into a rural sort of rural area, rural school and sort of getting to with farmer sons. So that's sort of where the passion started. Um, and then once I finished my GCSEs and A-levels, um, I got accepted into SEC up in air or SIUC as it is now. Um, and did my three years there and got my degree and sort of not necessarily got pushed into towards dairy, but, um, sort of headed that direction for a bit of a change away from the beef and sheep. Um, and then after third year, I was going to stay on for my fourth and my honours, but then got offered a chance to go out to New Zealand through an agency. Um, so me and my best friend, Joseph, we decided to take that instead. Um, and we headed out there for just shy of a year. Um, worked down in Ashburton in mid-Canterbury uh, on big sort of, you know, 2,000, 2,500 cow systems. Um, loved it. Um probably didn't love the winter right enough but um it's just very much like scotland but wetter and colder so um yeah so no and then went over traveling in australia didn't see any any farming whatsoever uh, over there um and i came back back home straight into lamin um which was quite nice uh, and then straight after that sort of applied started applying for jobs um mainly in the dairy sector just because it was fresh and that's sort of what I wanted to focus on at the at the time. So um applied for applied for a herdsman's job um down in Somerset and got an interview the same day and when I turned up to the to the headquarters as it was, I swiftly realised it was Yule Valley. So it was a bit of a a sort of a you know a, a deep breath anyway. So um so long story short, I was working there for a year and a half. Loved every second of it really. It was nice, and obviously with those being organic as well, it's sort of, even though they were running a New Zealand system, it was nice to sort of, you know, dabble in a bit of everything, really. So, um, and obviously with them being a sort of the business that they are, it's very much along the same lines of SIUC. So, you know, looking back at it now, it sort of set me up to come and work here quite nicely, really. So, um, but yeah, so I left there after a year and a half of sort of wanting to get away from dairy and back into beef and sheep. Um, and I went up to Stranra for four and a half years, Worked on a very extensive system out there, um, 700 Romneys, 200 pure Hereford cows, uh, very much just on the on the cliff tops, really, right down to the sea. So, um, but yeah, love that as well. And 
you know, lamb and time was very much just, you know, me and my dog outside 700 sheep and it was done, you know? So, and yeah, the sort of, sort of time came after four years where the boss was starting to just sort of slow down a wee bit and um, there wasn't necessarily going to be a job for me there anymore. So just decided to go self-employed because that was the sort of easiest thing to do at the time. And it, you know, sort of entertain my passion for having my own sheep anyway. It gave me the chance to do that. So bought myself 200 sheep and you know, they were the sort of the cheapest, cheapest blackies and herdwicks you've ever seen. But you know, all that matters was I was going to get them in lamb and sell these lambs at £200 a head. But um, sadly, I never got to that stage because I got a phone call from George Bakey here at SIUC who um, asked me to come down for an interview, sort of vaguely described the job, but said it'd be sort of working with students and sheep. So I thought, well, I'll give it a bash and see what happens really. So, um, and then, yeah, sort of long story short, I've been here just over a year um, and I've never looked back since really. Yeah, what you know, what an interesting CV, and obviously we're in the early part of your career, but you've covered a lot of bases and obviously picked up a lot of a lot of knowledge there. And I, I think it's particularly interesting looking at those. You know, the grass-based dairy is probably the the part of the industry who's got the most understanding of costs and you know its output per hectare. And I think it's really interesting to see that coming into. Joe, in a, in a, in the, I was going to say post-subsidy, but in a new subsidy environment, that's going to be really important. And, you know, there's an awful lot we can learn from the dairy guys, particularly around about grass and rotational grazing, but there's an awful lot we can learn from these guys and apply to sheep systems and actually have, you know, have that kind of dream of a really low input system that actually has a significant output from grass. Yeah, I think there's there's plenty of systems that are doing it and plenty of farms. I think they've, you know, introduced it. But I think it's it's seeing the different systems where it actually works compared to the systems that that are necess- you know aren't necessarily doing the taking the right steps in order to make it as efficient as it can be. I think so. I think it's it's with anything in life, isn't it? It's experience and it's just going around seeing different things and, and learning from it. So um, I think obviously that's the that's what I'm trying to bring onto this farm anyway, really at the minute. So. Yeah, no, and it's a, well, just actually move, move on to where the farm is at. So, Barony, obviously, so George Bakey was my old boss. He was a, a senior manager in SEC Consulting and then took on the job of SRUC Farms Director. So, he's in charge of all the farms. Ultimately, he's, I suppose, accountable for all the decisions that are made. And I know he's fairly changed. He's been in that job for a few years now, and he's got a good team of people around him, and they, they are striving to make changes to these farms obviously they're research and education farms so there's multiple challenges we're not just trying to produce output per hectare we're trying to have a good student experience and provide quality research you know there's there's multiple plates in the air but what could you give us a bit of an insight so what was the sheep system you went to at barony to start with and then what what's it become what what changes have you made uh, so basically it was very you know sort of traditional lowland sheep system um as it were for the uk uh, it was 500 sort of north of england scotch mules um you know lambing february and march to texel or a suffolk top uh, and that was it uh, they just bought i think it was 50 dorset 50 dorset yow lambs or gimmers they'd bought from a sale down south i think bought a couple of tops from over atlantic and you know they were just sort of starting to adventure into that sort of way of into sheep farm as well which is obviously a a very different direction, I think, that the you know the farm was used to. So, um, 
but yeah, so and it, you know it works perfect. And I think obviously I got straight into. I started in May, and in first of September I had to lamb the dorsets. So um, I don't think the the top one was as you know successful as um, as the imagined anyway but i mean it was it's pretty bloody good for what it was so um but yeah so since then we've we've lambed the dorsets i've sort of whittled a few down just to concentrate on the the quality rather than the quantity and the mules wise we sort of kept the same numbers um but increased it ever so slightly with another hundred um but that was mainly sort of to to cover the the culls that i'd taken out post lambing so we sort of ended up with about 550 in the end um but then since then i've introduced 200 Highlanders, um, which is obviously a um, innovous bred, innovous bred cross sheep, really, um, which has just worked absolute wonders for this farm. Uh, obviously, the main reason for it was just with the the lambs being born in February and March. You know, come three months old, a lot of them are if they're not away, they they're ready to go away, really. So, you know, we had this surplus of of dairy ground that a lot of it wasn't getting grazed, and it just seemed a shame to start bailing absolutely everything for the sake of it so or topping it so um yeah the plan was to bring in a, a couple of hundred extra highlanders just to sort of beef numbers up and and see if we can start you know heading in a slightly different direction um and obviously that's mainly from the sort of the time in stramara i had for the four years with the romneys seeing how sort of effective and efficient they were um as well as you know taking things from new zealand and and everything else like that with the the whole rotational grazing sort of the way of it so but yeah um, haven't looked back since really i mean obviously we've you know we've finished the lamb and now and i've finished marking lambs there the other day and it's yeah i can't argue with in the slightest really so and that so the highlander is a composite breed and it's it's obviously innovous bred it's driven by figures um which is obviously again from the dairy side of things we've seen the I suppose for a while in the dairy world, we saw the damage that chasing one particular trait, chasing milk yield figures, meant everything else fell to bits. But you now look at the dairy, you know, the indices they're working with and increasingly the genomics they're working with, the power of having data for breeding stock is is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. The is that something for you? So those Highlanders, do you are you going to continue? Are you breeding your own replacements? Are you going to continue that? data recording piece or do you just keep buying from a known source no um obviously the 200 i originally bought they were down from devon um that's mike tucson down there who is a he's a breed partner for innovus anyway so um i mean the main reason there isn't a lot of highlanders for sale in the uk anyway um but i was thankful enough that he sort of he recognized what i was trying to do here with the college and everything and you know him wanting to get the word out about highlanders and his obviously his, his own business sort of helped in the fact that you know, we sort of had a bit more of a reach really and we could get the, you know, spread the word. So um, he's very much high health as well. And that was a sort of the biggest importance more than anything else was, you know, not really bringing anything onto the farm that, you know, we didn't necessarily want to bring into the area anyway. So, And it's important we make sure that you get the credit for that idea and not George gets it all. No, well, I think obviously I've got to give a bit of credit to Daniel Stout as well, one of our consultants, because George sort of, he brought him and, um, and Jack down and we just had a, a discussion one afternoon and, it was very much sort of trying to figure out, I knew I wanted to head in that direction anyway, um, but whether it was going to be either a Romney or a Highlander, that was the sort of the big decision. Um, you know, and the main reason for the Highlander over the Romney was the fact that I wanted a more, I wanted a more, um, you know, a sort of condensed, condensed yow, a lighter yow as well, that was, 
you know, the average of the whole flock was going to sort of stay at that 65, 70 kilo yow instead of the, the Romneys that are quite renowned for fluctuating between, you know, back in Samra, I'd have a, a 70 kilo Romney yow, but I'd also have a 110 kilo Romney yow. So I think that was the main, that was definitely one of the main key focuses anyway. And, um, and then obviously the higher scanning percentage as well. You know, I think my Romneys typically would have done about 180 percent, whereas these Highlanders were doing where well, they scanned at 218 percent there. So, um, I think yeah, there's there's definitely advantages and disadvantages to both. I think the Romneys would probably give you a slightly thicker set lamb um, to start off with, but you know, we put the primaries over the Highlanders here, and you know, they did what was said on the tin. It was very much easy lambing. You know, vigor wise, the lambs were straight up and and sucking and. They might not be the biggest lambs to start with, but they are putting on on weight at some some rate. So it's um yeah, I think for our system especially, they work they work better for my system than than a Romney would down here. I think anyway. Yeah, I think the Romney. You know, there's an awful lot of examples, good examples of people doing a really good job with the Romney in Scotland. But for most people, they're just as you say, they're they tend to be too big and certainly too woolly. You know, wool is is no longer. Oh, hopefully, it's changing. You know, the wool price is moving, but it's not the big asset or target it used to be. And and the Highlander, although still, you know, there's a bit of Romney in there, and it will they will have a you know a, have more wool on them. They won't be that double clip type sheep that a Romney has has to be as well. So management should be a bit easier. Yeah, I mean, I think we could we could almost get to that stage where we are clipping twice a year, but I think that's that's more of a a management sort of decision in the sense that I clipped them just before it wasn't ideal, but I clipped them just before lambing time. But that was only because, because obviously they were, we've got so much grass down here. It's hard to sort of limit anything to the, you know, the correct amount of feeding. Um, and obviously when it's just based off grass as well, it's, you know, you don't necessarily want to keep them behind a fence the whole time. Um, it's not necessarily feasible at the minute anyway around here, but um, so I clipped them a couple of weeks before lambing time because they were, um, a lot of them just seem to be cowping on their backs um, and the crows got a couple of them as well. So it was sort of one of those decisions where it was, do we just, you know, do I keep on driving around the field 20 times a day and hope that nothing gets caught by the birds or do we just get them clipped now and then not have to worry about it in a couple of months time? So that's the, the decision we took. And to be fair, it's, it's paid off big time really. So. Um, and so- do you think, is, is that something now, you know, we have seen a few more people now winter clipping, particularly those that are going to be housing sheep and, you know, there's, there's a lot of advantages advantages to winter clipping. So rather than clipping them pre-lambing, do you think you'll do it like I suppose it's, it's a very similar time? But I, th- I think so. It's um, I mean, obviously they were you know they're lambing in um, sort of mid-April, so it was you know the start of April. The weather was sort of on the turn, so you could sort of rely on you know on them being clipped and not having too much of a a battle with the with the elements really. But I think obviously winter clipping, you know, if we were to have them. If we were to have the, house them inside, I think it's almost not necessarily going away from. Well, no, I suppose it is going away from the the sort of whole idea of that extensive, easy management. You know, no concentrate feeding or anything. Mean, obviously, you wouldn't have to feed them concentrates inside. You can just feed them silage. But I think, um, yeah, whether you know whether we even did it at the start of March, um, a month prior to, to lambing and clip them then, or you know, whether it's just a case of just trying to manage the grass and what they're you know, the, the grass intake, that's slightly bit better really. But um, like I said, at the minute, it's just quite hard. Fencing-wise, it's quite hard to to sort of implement it. It's an interesting challenge. You know, we Scotland's not a big country, but it's so diverse when it comes to 
systems and weather. And do you know the thought of southwest of Scotland having too much grass at lambing time? If you're in the borders or in the northeast, it must be you know there's a yeah. I think we need to watch. We don't go for a blueprint system that fits everywhere when actually we need to deal with that you know your own farm issues and your own farm issue is you've got tons of grass you've got a sheep system that needs to work around a lot of dairy cows and you know limited options there because the other option you've got is put off the dairy and put on another 5,000 ewes or something you know yeah, I, don't, I don't think um, you or George would agree to that one no I don't, think, <laughs> I don't think that's on and uh, you know in the wrong year you'd be tearing your hair out anyway so it's interesting actually looking at so that obviously the rise of the robots and, and dairying has actually made a lot of dairy farms an awful lot bigger than they used to be. You know, they're carrying because they're cutting, you know, generally housed a they're cutting, you know, two or three cuts a year, three, four cuts a year, a you then land up with a big grassy farm that's not really needed for anything else. And I, I do wonder whether the future for a lot of these dairy farms is actually to have that small intensive sheep flock alongside it um you know that would need to be something the dairy would be the focus it would need to be something that was fairly hands-off a uh, grass-based and, and simple but certainly if you're looking to sweat the whole farm asset for barony certainly expanding that sheep flock has been a really good idea and certainly something that there's or i think there's scope to to go a bit more you know what what numbers do you think you could get to given you know including how many dairy cows is there and, and how many um yeah you think we could run alongside that uh we've got what, 230 milking cows at the minute um i mean typically the grazing wise i mean obviously we're quite fortunate in the fact that we have a lot of rented ground next door as well so um over at Stamia next door is is solely a sheep system that i can sort of thankfully i can sort of work around in a rotational a rotational way anyway so cows or young stock never actually touch that um which is you know hugely beneficial but obviously with it being rented i have to be off there for you know a certain certain number of days or a, well, a couple of months at least i think really through the winter so then obviously we've got the Crichton, which we can sort of we take on winterers from winter and sheep from i think it's kirkton we get them from or easter howgate which is obviously another campus of ours um so we take those on as well, which limits the amount of grass I can take over there. But then the grass that we own over here at the Barony as well, you know, through the winter, a lot of that is is either grazed by the grazed by the sheep or, you know, left for sort of early onset silage in the you know in the start of the spring really. So, but yeah, grazing wise for the cows, there's a set amount of fields which the sheep don't necessarily touch, um, which is it makes my life a lot easier anyway. Um, and grazing wise for the cows. I mean, typically, I think they're a lot more settled. As much as I would love to see them behind fences outside, I think they're a lot more settled inside. You know, eating the TMR. Um, obviously, at the minute they're out um, through the day, straight after milking, and then get brought in just before. Um, but like a lot of, you know, like a lot of sort of intensive dairy systems at the minute, the cows are almost trained. You know, it's sort of been bred out of them to eat grass. Now they sort of go out and they don't really know what to do. So um, I think a lot of the times it's especially on hot days, it's just lying outside under a tree and, and standing back up when they're ready to be milked. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's definitely scope to put a lot more yows on. I think if we went solely, not that we can go solely Highlanders, obviously we've got the student aspect to look at as well, which is obviously where the mules come in in the February and the March. But um, Highlanders-wise, I mean, at the minute, I'd quite happily you know run at 200. I'm sort of aiming to get another 100 gimmers 
off mic this year if I can. And that's only to sort of supplement the fact that I've got Yao lambs, but I'm not topping Yao lambs. I'll leave those and, and gimmer them really and top them next year. So, but I think the aim for me at the minute is to sort of build up to 500 in the next, at least certainly by next year to have 400 if I can, obviously with all replacements coming through. Um, and if I can sort of stabilize it at 500 Highlanders outside with 200 mules or 250 mules lambing inside, I think that'll be the base that we can sort of work off. And then if I can, if I can sort of tweak that a wee bit and, and put the Highlander numbers up, I think, I think there's scope to do that. I mean, ideally, I think I could, I could genuinely see us, you know, we have got scope, providing we've still got all the ground that we have, there is scope to have almost, you know, at least, you know, 900, 1,000 Highlanders. With them being so small and compact, I think if that was Romney's, you couldn't, you know, you'd be, you'd be tied at sort of five, 600, I think. But the fact we can sort of rely on, um, you know, rely on this sort of smaller, smaller compact yeah i think you can um you know you can sort of get away with a lot more anyway so but yeah so for the next couple of years look to sort of set them up at 500 and then and then sort of make a decision in the next couple of years to see if we can really sort of push that and see how far we can really get without making ourselves struggle really and is the goal with the highlander flock to have a a no concentrate policy is that the yes so they've they've never had concentrates in their life whatsoever um and they never will um, through the whole of winter. You know, they're outside on grass and that was it. And, you know, I, I even tested the, this this spring through lambing. I got into um, reading the quality of the colostrum with the refractometer with both the mules inside. And I almost got addicted to it. It was that sort of pleasing to see. Um, I think it was more the fact that there was a little bit of twin lamb knocking about in the sheds and there shouldn't have been because we'd, between me and Sam Henderson at the consultants there, we'd analysed the grass that they were on pre-lamming, we'd analysed all the silage that they were going to be getting fed and then we tailored, we worked with uh, TARF and tailored a, a specific blend rather than a, a pelleted form, specific blend to them that would suit every need that they had with what they were already getting. Um, and yeah, for the first, the February lambing yows, it was absolutely perfect, not a single problem. And with the March lambing yows, just halfway through, they just started little, little hits here and there um, but then looking back on that now, it was a change in silage. Um, I think it was a bit of a bit of a mess with um, you know being told that certain bales were from certain fields and they'd actually just been wrapped the same and they were from a different field, so it was different dry matters. And I think just that little bit of a change, alongside you know the the yows being inside, it was just a little bit too much for them. I think so. Um, yeah, so I think that's really where we're at at the minute. It's a funny thing. There's nothing funny about it. It's a strange thing. The metabolic disease thing in sheep. Just when you think you've done everything to to combat it, and the slightest of, you know, even five percent try matter change, and it just throws everything completely off, and you can't help but sit there and blame yourself when it's not really anything you can do, really. But yeah, it is in the lap of the gods, and yeah, literally, you, you can do, you can do everything right and run into a problem, and then sometimes you can do a few things that aren't quite right and get yeah. away with it, no bother. So. No, but that was it. But um, but yeah. So obviously, anyway. So the started getting addicted to reading the colostrum, and you know, looking at the colostrum there, it used to be eighteen, but anything over twenty two percent now, you know, you you're laughing at. It's brilliant stuff, and um, you know, I don't think we had anything that was under twenty six. I think so. Majority of the hours were you know off the off the actual scale over thirty thirty plus. So um, but anyway, so no. So I started taking that out when I was lambing outside with the Highlanders. And, um, you know, you'd be reading their quality of colostrum just off grass with no concentrates. 
And, you know, majority, you know, 90% of them were well over the 30, 30 mark, you know? So I think it's, there's a lot to be said, I think anyway, a lot that you can, um, a lot that people could probably learn off as well, I think. And, and it's a funny thing for me that, you know, a grass-based system, your mules, and your mules are in a, a student scenario there, and, you know, lambing inside is important with them, but like so for this, you're looking at costs, the annual cycle of a sheep, we can make changes within the year, and the costs that we're looking at for winter would suggest to me that we need to make some pretty big decisions before we put tops out this year. And I do wonder whether we actually, there's a a lot of people that could actually do a lot off of grass if all we do is alter our lambing date. And I know there's implications to that. You know, it changes when we're, when we're selling finished lambs, it changes maybe to selling store lambs. Or, But if we're looking at concentrate costs in excess of £400, certainly before we start putting tops out, we need to think about how how do we control that cost or how do we it's definitely worth thinking about anyway because i don't think the rate that most you know most typical traditional farms at the minute you know mules inside pumping loads of feed into them i just i don't think it's sustainable in the slightest and i think that's that was sort of the whole reason for me getting into the outside lamb with the highlanders is is more i know we've got to keep the mules but it's a nice contrast and sort of you know, it shows these students as well, you know, come 2028, there's not going to be any subsidies. And if they, if we can at least show them or lead them down this path that makes them realize that there's more to life than, you know, having a, a highly productive, intensive yow that's inside, you pump feed into her for six weeks pre lambing And, you know, if she's in February, you're going to supplement her for three or four weeks after that as well with a snacker. You know, how much money are you really going to put into that yow before you actually see a return Yes, you're going to get a good price with your your early lambs that you send away, but at the end of the day, it's you know if we're not going to be getting subsidies from the government, you know you are going to have to take it into your own hands and try and work something out. That I think it's obviously like like we said earlier on, it you've got to cater your system for your farm anyway. You know your stock have got to revolve around your system. And I think that's the biggest sort of take home to look at really. But it's, there's definitely more that I think a lot of farmers could probably be looking at. And I think the subsidy story is interesting because I'm unsure what the future of the subsidy system is going to look like given the level of uncertainty that's on the go on everything at the moment. Yeah. Food all of a sudden has become relevant. So 2028 is a long way off. But what we do know is if you can make profit without subsidy, whatever happens to the subsidy system, you're going to be better off. No, that's it. And I mean, the end of the day 2020 it's a long time away but you know that's only six lambing times and you know if you're going to start at least thinking about implementing change on the farm then at least it gives you a couple of years to you know to think it over and then a few years to sort of actually introduce it and then a couple of years to tweak it to how how it's going to benefit you and then at least you're you're almost there by the time 2028 really comes around so um yeah so we have we have kind of touched on the future of sheep and, and certainly we've focused on systems being different and uh, different farms working with the assets we've got or resources we've got but what role do you think so the composite breeds like the highlander and low-cost systems do you think this is the the way most farmers will be in 10 20 years time is this the the grass-based system is this the system of the future do you think i think it's i mean in my head i think it's probably one of the only really logical ways to go but i don't think that's 
it's definitely not the be all and end all. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of things that farmers and breeders in the UK can be doing to sort of not necessarily I don't know how you would really word it, but you know the, for for the mules at the minute, you know the mules do an amazing job, and they have for however many however many years they've been about. You know, there's there's a reason they're probably one of the most common commercial yows in the country. But I think it's like anything, like you said earlier with a dairy as well. I think when you're breeding for specific traits, it's quite easy to ignore or look past other traits that might necessarily, you know, you know, might if we can get, you know, if we could get yows producing lambs mule yows producing lambs from grass even you know with a reduced amount of 50 percent reduced amount of of concentrate feeding that's a you know it's going to put yourself in a lot better state than it is um what we are now but i think yeah i think for the minute i think obviously the whole composite breeding obviously innovus being a good example is they're doing a fantastic job and i think a lot of it is obviously ebv based as well i think that's one of the major one of the major sort of key or fundamental changes i think most people can actually make i mean i know a lot of people you know old traditional farmers go go off tops and bulls by eye and it works out but from what i've seen in the last few years especially the last year using recorded tops um there's definitely i think there's definitely an advantage and i think you can see the you can see the advantages of using it um so i think yeah more i think recording and ebvs in general i think would probably almost be the the starting point of the focal point, I think, and then everything else builds off that. But, you know, if we could sort of, I mean, like I said, it's, it's easy for us to talk because, you know, we've, we're on a dairy farm, we've got tons of grass and it's, it's a problem that I have keeping grass down, but it's a nice problem at the same time. Um, you know, some guys might be the top of Scotland listening to this and think I'm an absolute idiot, but, um, but it's, yeah, it doesn't work for every system. And I understand that, but I think there's a lot more people can be doing, um, and I think you'll see it, especially the last couple of years as well. I think there's a lot of people winning all these farmers' weeklies competition, and it's all very much the same type of person. It is rotational grazing with composite, efficient, low input systems. And to be fair, you know, it's it's something different. I think, which is obviously why they're winning at the minute, and it's it stands out. But I think it's standing out for a, you know, for good reason. I think, and it, it is. I think yeah, it'd be um, it'd be hard for me to say it's the only way to be going, but I think at the minute it's it's the way that a lot of people are going because it just shows that we're actually trying to to do something to better ourselves really and try and fix a problem that's not necessarily here at the minute, but I think it's definitely definitely coming anyway. Yeah, it's interesting just listening to you talk there. Actually, you know the the drivers for putting Highlanders on at Barony are, are clear, you know, and, and I think it seems it's working really well, but it's that huge asset of grass that actually would, you could be excused for just running a pile of, you know, it, it's pretty straightforward operating a sheep system, not trying to take away from what you're doing and all the good work you're doing, but the guys that are up in the north or the, the guys and even me at home, you know, more difficult places to grow grass are actually the places that this grass-based system is best placed to, or best suited to, because they've got a limited resource and we're trying to make as much stuff off that limited resource as we can. Um, so certainly I, I do think it's worth, whatever breed you're working with, it's well worth looking at how, you know, how can we get more production from the stuff we're getting for free or close to free. Um, and certainly there's a heap of stuff on the FAS website um, 
on you know rotational grazing, but there's more to life than rotational grazing as well. Oh, 100%. Uh, just improving grassland management and, and altering, altering the system to suit what's coming down the line so certainly lots to think about Perry that's been excellent I've certainly thoroughly enjoyed it and I know there will be in the in months and years to come there will be various open days and things at Barony and I'm sure you'll be happy to see plenty of people down there to see these see these Highlanders in the flesh yep no definitely can't wait to show them off <laughs> perfect excellent thank you very much Perry if you enjoyed listening to Stock Talk, you may enjoy some of our other podcasts, such as Crofting Matters, which is a 12-part monthly show that discusses all things crofting in Scotland, including livestock management. You may also enjoy our new podcast, Agriculture, which tells the stories of some interesting and influential people in the agricultural industry. Just search Crofting Matters or Agriculture wherever you get your podcasts from. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.